0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. In this inflammation today, we're going to be touching on the concept of neuroinflammation. This podcast episode was actually inspired by a listener who reached out to me on Instagram who said she had recently been diagnosed with neuroinflammation and she suggested this might be a topic to cover on the podcast with the idea being how to heal a tired brain. And so that's what I'm going to be focusing on in this episode before we get started, I think it's going to be quite a heavy one. Um I had to do a lot of preparation for this episode just to kind of understand all the technical details on a level that I could then explain them in a very simple way. So I hope I'm going to do this episode justice. But before I dive in, just to ask you to leave a review if you have been enjoying these podcast episodes, the best place to do that is on iTunes. So if you can find this podcast on iTunes and leave a review, even if you just leave five stars, you don't necessarily have to write any text. I would really appreciate that because it just helps improve the rankings of the podcast, which means that more people get to find this information. So if you appreciate and value the information I have been sharing, I would really appreciate if you could do that for me. So that's all I wanted to say as we get started. So let's dive into talking about neuroinflammation. And I'll preframe here by saying that my understanding of neuroinflammation is shaped by my training in psychoneuroimmunology. So in 2015 and 2016, I did a two-year diploma in psychoneuroimmunology, which was hosted by the Natura Foundation and through CNELM, which is where I did my master's in nutrition. The course was absolutely brilliant. One of the main lecturers on the course was a man called Leo Prembroon, who I would say he's in my top five favorite brains of all time. Just the most incredible man with the most incredible amount of knowledge. And I can only hope that this episode is going to do His teachings a little tiny bit of justice because he really knows this stuff inside out. And um, I can only hope to convey maybe a small part of it to you. So as we're looking at this concept of neuroinflammation, I'm going to draw on something that I've spoken about in the podcast before, which is this idea of the immune system and how it works. So I'm pretty sure I've used this analogy, perhaps in the cell danger response episode, that we all know what it feels like to be unwell. We all know what it feels like to have a flu or a viral infection or a really bad cold or just something that is an acute illness. And when we experience an acute illness, how do we feel? Well, we feel tired, we feel foggy in the brain, we have no energy in our muscles or metabolic system, even just walking up a flight of stairs would have us feeling very achy and breathless and exhausted. We probably feel very low in mood socially withdrawn we don't have motivation to go out to see people to socialize and we probably have some aches and pains throughout the body not to mention other things perhaps like you know a sore throat cough a snotty nose that type of thing and when we experience these sickness symptoms or these flu-like symptoms they are not the virus or the virus isn't causing those symptoms directly but rather this is a reflection of the changes that are happening in the body acutely so that you can prioritize energy towards your immune system Which means if we're prioritizing energy towards the immune system, we can't necessarily prioritize energy towards the brain. And therefore, there are changes that happen acutely when we experience an illness or infection that changes the energy distribution in the body. And therefore, we experience some of these cognitive symptoms. Now obviously this is a acute situation so we have a very very large or magnified energy change as an example it takes about 500 grams of glucose which is 2000 calories per day for the immune system to deal with some sort of sepsis some sort of major major infection so That's 2,000 calories a day, that's about how much the average person may eat a day. And remember that your body still has to do other functions as well, given that for most of us, our resting metabolic rate is probably between 1,200 and 1,400 calories. We've got our resting metabolic rate, and then we've got an increase in our metabolic rate due to some sort of infection. We'll very easily burn through a load of energy very, very fast. Which is why we need to shut down certain other body systems so that we can prioritize the immune system. And in contrast, and I think I may have shared this statistic before on this podcast, is Professional chess players burn between 6,000 and 7,000 calories a day through their cognitive function, which just goes to show when the brain is working very hard, it can consume a large amount of calories. And that's why we can't have optimal brain function and optimal immune function happening at the same time. Of course, if the immune system didn't need to be active The immune system in an inactive state only burns about 85 calories a day. So that's basically 9 grams of fat. It uses 9 grams of fat at rest compared to 500 grams of sugar when it's active. But that means it's not in competition with the brain when it's inactive. So we can have an optimal immune function when the immune system doesn't need to be active and healthy brain function. But we can't have optimal brain function and some sort of immune, active immune response happening in the body at the same time. One needs to dominate over the other. And in the case of the concept of neuroinflammation, which is what we're talking about today, neuroinflammation is a consequence of the changes that happen in the body when the immune system needs to dominate over the brain. Essentially, we cannot have a chronic disease without neuroinflammation. And neuroinflammation is the underlying mechanism behind disease. So when this person reached out to me on Instagram and they said, I've been diagnosed with neuroinflammation, I think sometimes if you're somebody who doesn't understand this, that might be quite a shocking thing to hear because we know that large amounts of neuroinflammation can be associated with aging, with traumatic brain injury, and with neurodegenerative disease. But it's also important to understand that neuroinflammation is probably something that is affecting anyone with a chronic illness to a varying degree. And therefore you know, we might think here, well, what do we go in to do to support the neuroinflammation specifically? And I really want to encourage through what I'll teach in the rest of this podcast to think about the bigger picture. What I'm going to be offering is a model for looking at neuroinflammation. And then how do we support, as this person expressed, the tired brain, how do we support our body to come back to better health? So, Actually, neuroinflammation in the right dose can be beneficial. Neuroinflammation can help the brain to communicate with the immune system. Neuroinflammation may play a role in development, memory, and learning potential. Neuroinflammation may support injury-induced remodeling of the brain, and it may also precondition the immune system so the immune system can respond better. And so here, what's really important to understand is that neuroinflammation in the short term or in the right dosage can actually be helpful and beneficial. But neuroinflammation, which is chronic and ongoing, can be what drives aging and neurodegenerative disease. And ultimately, what we're looking at when we're looking at this concept of neuroinflammation, it's... The dominance of the immune system over the brain, which means we've lost dominance of the brain over the rest of the body, over the immune system and over the metabolic system and the reproductive system and all the other systems. And it's also dominance of the immune system over the metabolic system, which means that one of the ways we can support the body to restore a better balance is looking at how we work with the metabolic system and how we overcome the immune system's control of the metabolic system. So again, here, it's really important to understand that these changes that happen in the short term, they're beneficial. But it's when they continue for a long period of time, they can become maladaptive. And that usually happens because there's a problem that still needs to be resolved. And if this is the case, the body becomes stuck in a low-grade inflammation. And it's this low-grade inflammation that perpetuates the neuroinflammation. But here, it's really important to remember that the body is operating with your best interests at heart. There is an intelligence to the choices that the body is making. Even if you don't like it, even if it doesn't make sense, your body is doing the best it can to look after you and keep you safe. So what is the benefit? I'm sure it probably feels like there is no benefit to having this chronic, low-grade neuroinflammation in your body, but your body is essentially buying you time to resolve the problem. The reason why we have a low-grade inflammation is because a full-blown immune response, like you might get if you had a sepsis or a very extreme viral infection, it's not sustainable so the immune system is like a life insurance policy when it pays out it's too late for you to reap the benefits so if the immune system was as active as it might be if you had a sepsis or if you had a very extreme infection where you're burning through huge huge amounts of energy every single day just to overcome the infection eventually the changes that are happening in the body would kill you because the energy demand is too high. So the body, after 42 days, will revert to a low-grade inflammation because it's keeping the danger at bay, but it's not necessarily able to fully resolve the danger. But by keeping it at bay, it buys you time to find a solution to the problem. And essentially, a low-grade inflammation means that something hasn't been solved. And that could be something physical. So I've shared a little bit about my journey and my experience with mold illness. That was something that was very physical, that was in my body, that needed to be dealt with. It was an infection that needed to be addressed. But it could also be something emotional, a trauma or a dysregulation of the nervous system, or it could be something psychological or mental. And until the problem is solved, the low grade inflammation will sustain. And that's part of healing, is part of healing is for us to work out what are the problems that need to be solved and helping our body find a relative sense of safety so that our biochemistry can return back to normal and back to what's optimal. In the case of chronic conditions, so somebody with a low-grade inflammation, which I would argue is anybody who's experiencing a chronic illness, is that there's something that needs to be solved. Something didn't finish, something wasn't able to complete that needed to be completed, and that could be the resolution or completion of an infection, or that could be related to a traumatic event, or that could be related to ongoing toxin exposure, or an ongoing mindset or mental attitude that is continuing to generate stress in one's life. So here, as we move into this kind of understanding of something that needs to be completed, let's look a little bit more at what is in an acute scenario, how this mechanism begins to impact the brain and impact the neuroinflammation. So this is going to get a little bit technical. So when we're looking at this idea of hypothalamic inflammation, we have different cells in the brain that are located either side of the blood-brain barrier. So the blood-brain barrier is the barrier between the bloodstream and the brain, and it's composed of many cells, and it's a structural and a functional protective roadblock, should we say, to prevent microorganisms like bacteria, yeast, fungi, viruses, parasites, etc., toxins that may be circulating in the bloodstream. It prevents them from crossing through into the brain because the brain is our most important organ. We need to protect it and keep it safe. So we have the blood-brain barrier in place that protects the brain. And in an acute inflammatory event, the body may initiate a peripheral inflammation. So you eat some bad food. You get a bug in your gut. You're going to have a translocation of immune molecules to your gut to deal with the infection. Or say, for example, you are running around barefoot and you cut yourself and the wound gets infected. You'll have a migration of immune cells to that wound that are there to overcome the infection, are there to protect you, are there to keep you safe. Um, Or maybe you get a viral infection and that viral infection gets into the body and the immune cells are sent into circulation so that they can deal with it and protect you and keep you safe. But because there has been some sort of threat, and remember this can be a physical threat, it can be an emotional threat, it can be a mental threat, because there is some threat, there is an inflammatory cascade of events that happens and the glial cells in the brain become activated and the astrocyte cells turn into immune cells. So we've got these two cell types which are located on the brain side of the blood-brain barrier that respond to the peripheral inflammation in the body. So the glial cells become activated and they inflame neurons in the brain known as the orexigenic and the anorexigenic neurons in the brain. And these words probably sound like anorexia and orthorexia to you and therefore it's these neurons which are responsible for what we refer to as pushing and pulling of energy across the blood-brain barrier. So essentially appetite signaling which is why when we become acutely unwell we may experience suppression of our appetite. Or maybe when we experience a really big stress, we don't want to eat anything. We can't eat anything. And one of the reasons for this is because we don't want to be sending loads of energy across the blood-brain barrier to the brain when the immune system needs it. So whether you are sick with a virus and you don't want to eat anything, or whether you are experiencing a really, really big stress and you don't want to eat anything, it's because your body... A, probably doesn't want to put you at risk of exposure to anything else that may be coming into the body through food. So it's saying, well, let's just not eat because if we eat something that brings in some more bacteria, that's going to be more for us to deal with right now. So we don't want to eat. But also, we don't want to be having this hunger being generated from the brain, which is pulling energy across the blood brain barrier into the brain because we want that energy to be available for the immune system. So the next thing that happens is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis becomes activated. So the hypothalamus being a region of the brain, the pituitary gland also being a region of the brain, and then the adrenal glands, the two little glands that produce our stress hormones that sit above our kidneys... They become activated and the body produces what is known as adrenal corticotropic hormone, ACTH. And ACTH is a very powerful anti-inflammatory and it protects the brain against inflammation. So we've got the glial cells becoming activated. They're causing some inflammation of these orthorexogenic and the anorexigenic um, neurons in the brain. And then the brain is responding to this inflammation by activating the HPA axis. We're producing this powerful anti-inflammatory, ACTH. And um, this also means that we're producing ACTH. We're going to the adrenal glands. The production of cortisol is being stimulated. And these two very powerful anti-inflammatories switches off the immune system in the periphery. So in the outside of the brain, in the periphery of the body, if we're able to turn off the immune system, so we have these powerful anti-inflammatories being produced, the ACTH and the cortisol, and these are able to potentially turn off the immune response in the periphery, and the brain receives the signal that the body is safe now, and things can return to normal. So in this scenario, the inflammation of the hypothalamus is a trigger for the anti-inflammatory response, which protects the brain from damage. And this response happens both to infection or psychological stress. Once the inflammation resolves, stem cells in the brain repair the hypothalamus, and it becomes even stronger than before, which means that what we can hear here. Is that short term acute stresses, what we would often refer to as hormetic stresses, have the ability to strengthen the brain, to strengthen the hypothalamus, to make us more resilient and better able to overcome stress and challenges, which is one of the reasons why certain stresses like heat stress, cold stress, fasting, or hunger stress, Thirst, hypoxia, which is oxygen deprivation, infections, and exercise can all be beneficial for health and the immune system. And we really want to be thinking about how we include these as part of our healing protocol. However, these are dose dependent stresses. So our hormetic stresses create a small amount of inflammation in the brain, which then has an anti inflammatory effect in the rest of the body. So we're adding a stress, for example, heat stress, cold stress, hunger stress, exercise. It's creating a little bit of inflammation in the brain, enough to stimulate that HPA axis so that we can produce the powerful anti-inflammatories, and then we can have an anti-inflammatory effect in the body. So then you might be asking, well, if I have neuroinflammation and I have a chronic disease, can I just use heat, stress, cold, stress, hunger, exercise to feel better? And the answer is yes. You can include these as part of your healing regime, but the dose has to be correct. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all. The dose for me may be different to the dose for you. And if you have other challenges going on in the body, sometimes we need to address other challenges first before we can be more tolerant of these hormetic stresses. So the example I've given so far is explaining what happens in an acute situation. And here you can probably have gathered that the short-term neuroinflammation was beneficial in the resolution of the immune response. It helped something to complete. But what happens if the immune system is not able to resolve the issue? What happens is that inflammation in the brain may be ongoing to continue to drive the attempt to manage inflammation in the body. And this is where we can get this chronic low-grade neuroinflammation which may be contributing to neurodegeneration, aging and um, essentially cognitive symptoms like brain fog, headaches, fatigue etc. At the same time changes are happening in the system as a whole to perpetuate the inflammation. So essentially The immune system is trying to stay active because it perceives that there is something that still needs to be resolved. But as a consequence of that active peripheral inflammation, we're also experiencing active neuroinflammation. And as a consequence, instead of having an acute adaptive inflammation in the brain, the inflammation becomes chronic and maladaptive. And so this is where we have to think about what does the body need to break the cycle? And essentially the immune system is going to remain active as long as it believes there's something that needs resolving. And remember that could be a mental stress, it could be a physical stress, or it could be an emotional stress. And In my experience, working with different clients with different fatigue conditions, it's either a combination of a physical and an emotional mental stress, or for some people, just the emotional mental component is enough to produce a positive outcome. But how we decide what's appropriate for which person really depends on taking a health history, running tests, digging into possible root causes, and moving forward from that place. But what I'd like to touch on now very briefly is how does the immune system sustain its activation? So from the moment the immune system turns on in a healthy system, the brain is already getting ready to turn it back off. But if the threat isn't able to be resolved, the immune system has to keep on re-energizing itself so that it can stay active. And one of the ways it does that is by changing metabolism. So I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that the immune system at rest only needs 85 calories a day, and it runs on fat. So it only needs about 9 grams of fat a day to sustain itself. But when it's active, it can use up to, in the case of sepsis, 500 grams of glucose a day. That's 2,000 calories. So in order for the immune system to stay active in a low-grade way, it needs to continue to have a supply of glucose. Essentially it needs to increase glycolysis, sugar burning, and decrease our mitochondrial fat burning. And these changes that the immune system creates keep it active and keep it able to grow, but there may be a downside in terms of how then that's impacting you and your body. So one of the things we can do is we can make Glucose, we can make sugar from protein. And that's the process called gluconeogenesis. So we can break down proteins to make sure that we have enough sugar. And there are obviously many different types of amino acids in the body. But in psychoneuroimmunology, the theory is that the types of amino acids we choose to break down to form glucose inform the disease. So the immune system picks a strategy and for example if it decides to use tryptophan which is the amino acid we use to make melatonin and serotonin then the disease may manifest as diseases of tryptophan imbalance. So for example depression which is associated with low serotonin or pain syndromes and things like fibromyalgia. Obviously, there are different amino acids, which may be associated with different conditions, but I think the tryptophan one is probably most relevant to this kind of chronic disease, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, burnout type of population. Our immune system can't use fat cells, so we have to essentially an active immune system can't use fat for energy and the immune system is dominating over the metabolic system. So we essentially take fats and we store them in fat cells and And those fat cells, especially around the abdomen, begin to grow. And especially if someone gains weight, they begin to push on each other. And just that growth and pushing on each other further increases the inflammatory cytokine production and it further increases the inflammatory environment. And that's just another way in which the immune system reactivates itself. And so another thing that the immune system does to support its own energizing and activation is to down-regulate glucose transporters on organs, and this includes the brain. So essentially what this means is that there's a loss of brain pull, Which is essentially the ability of the brain to pull energy across the blood brain barrier. Because it would do that using GLUT1 receptors. And if the GLUT1 receptors are now down regulated due to the inflammatory environment of the body, less energy is able to get to the brain. And hence the cognitive fatigue, headaches, foggy brain, you know, in air quotes, a tired brain. A tired brain is a brain with low. GLUT1 receptors because there is neuroinflammation, but also a low-grade inflammation in the body. Additionally, we also have glucose-dependent organs, and so if these organs can't get the glucose, they may start to shrink. And the immune system will use the proteins from the shrinking organs to make more glucose, and we may see sort of waste wasting across specific organs may also manifest in certain types of disease states. So all of these changes are, they sound horrific, but they are actually all happening for you because the only other option the body has is to create a massive immune response and probably kill you very quickly or to not respond at all and then the infection or the threat would potentially kill you but instead what it's doing is it's holding the threat at bay through creating these changes of low-grade inflammation so that you can work out what you need to do to solve the problem. So how do we solve the problem? Well that is probably the entire journey of healing from a chronic illness. For the most part it is many different things And that could be some physical things that need to be addressed. It could be some mental or emotional things that need to be addressed. But usually when we're thinking about chronic illness, it's not one magical thing that needs to happen. Sometimes there can be. Sometimes, you know, somebody just needed to give up gluten or they just needed to quit their job or change career. And those people, for the most part, I think are the lucky ones. But very often there's a series of different changes that have to happen on a mental, emotional and physical level, which can help the body feel safe again. So if we're kind of looking at this in the context of a bigger framework, what we really want to do is we want to create resolution for the peripheral inflammation so that the body can understand that it's safe enough and we don't have to sustain the neuroinflammation. And we also have to repair anything, any damage that was created. And that might be restoring the energy to the brain. If we think of this low-grade inflammatory environment, the immune system is dominating over the metabolic system and over the cognitive system, the brain. So there's two things we can do. We can reduce the need for the immune system in the periphery. And we can also help the brain to dominate again over the immune system and over the metabolic system, which is essentially restoring brain pull, which is upregulating the glute receptors and helping energy to cross through the blood-brain barrier so the brain is pulling energy inside so that it is energized and it can dominate again. So sometimes we need to do both and sometimes it's one or the other. So just because the immune system is pulling, it doesn't necessarily always mean that the brain has lost its pull. Sometimes the immune system is just pulling harder than the brain, but they can both pull energy in their direction. And I see this with clients. There are some clients I work with that have a lot of complexity in terms of their metabolic health, and then other clients that don't. And so this is very much on a case-by-case basis, but If the brain has lost its pull, then we need to address that. Because if you cannot pull, you cannot repair. And here then we need to consider how do we inhibit the immune system? So how do we manage the inflammation? And then how do we restore the brain pull? So I'll talk about those each separately. In terms of managing inflammation in the body, a huge part of this going goes back to identifying what is the problem that still needs to be resolved. And other episodes you could refer to in this podcast might be the um, episode titled on possible root causes. So understanding that there's there may be big things that we need to address if there's so if there's mold if there's toxicity if there's nervous system dysregulation those are probably going to be some of the bigger ones if there's viral infections if there's gut issues parasite infections any kind of infections are probably going to be a big cause of ongoing inflammation in the body but then there can also be not only the things that we're doing or the things that we have, but the things that we're not doing. Like, Are we eating a diet which supports a good inflammatory environment in the body? Are we exercising? Are we supporting the nervous system? Are we getting our daily sunlight exposure? How much stress do we have in our lives? So these are all factors which influence the inflammatory environment in the body, because they're all things that the body is seeking to find resolution around. So ultimately, we want to get to the bottom of what is perpetuating the inflammatory state, And how do we deal with that? And as I've said already, with a lot of clients, it can be a case of there's a gut issue, there's a mold issue, or it can be a case of this person needs a lot of work in their nervous system, and we need to help the nervous system feel safe so it can send safety signals up to the brain. So that's the first part. The second part I wanted to focus on a little bit more is restoring the brain pull. And brain pull really refers to the ability of the brain to dominate the body's energy allocation, essentially to pull energy into the brain. And loss of brain pull means low brain energy and therefore cognitive symptoms. And as I mentioned already, the brain stops pulling when the immune system is dominating. So part and parcel of restoring brain pull is to do your best to manage the inflammatory environment in the body. Because that inflammatory environment is what downregulates the GLUT1 receptors and then impacts the brain energy. So if the brain cannot pull, one of the things it tries to do instead is to push. And this looks like Appetite dysregulation, so if you feel that you're constantly hungry, you have a lot of cravings for carbohydrates and sweet things, and you feel that you're like constantly seeking food and you can become quite anxious or restless when you there isn't food available, or you really struggle to go without a meal, these are all signs that your brain pull needs some work. And if I'm working with clients on their blood sugar, if their blood sugar is very imbalanced, very up and down, very erratic, that can also be a sign that they need more support around blood sugar balance generally, but that could also be something which is having a negative impact on brain pull. So this is where we can implement fasting. This is where we can use a ketogenic diet because what we're doing is we're lowering the availability of glucose in the body So the body is then going to increase glucose or GLUT1 receptors in the blood-brain barrier because of the low availability and in doing so by creating this low availability of sugar we increase the brain's ability to pull that energy across into the brain. So I've done episodes on fasting. I've done episodes on the ketogenic diet. I won't go into the ins and outs of each of those, but those might be worthwhile going back to listen to. Whether you've not listened to them yet or you've listened to them already, it might still be nice to go back and do a little bit of a recap. We also want to introduce hormetic stresses. So there's quite a few different ones, but I think the easiest ones for people to implement are heat stress, cold stress, fasting which I've talked about already now and then exercise. And obviously this does need to be done at a dosage which is appropriate for you. So again it's probably beyond the scope of this episode to go into details on each but as a broad recommendation I'd say start with a very low dose and if you feel better or the same after you've done that exposure whether it's a you know 2 minute cold shower or 10 minutes in the sauna, then you can build up gently. But if these things make you feel worse afterwards instead of better, then you've done too much and you need to strip it back to the sort of lowest or highest, shall I say, tolerable dose. And then the final thing here is cognitive challenge. Remember the chess players that burn six to seven thousand calories a day because they're using their brain so much, and that means that we need to get that energy into the brain so that it can be used for cognitive function. And the same is true for fatigue, because often people with fatigue they stop doing things that make them feel tired, so they stop reading, they stop doing, um, you know, cognitive challenges, they stop working, they stop. anything that really takes too much brain energy. And these cognitive challenges are actually a hormetic stressor in themselves. So we want to make sure that we're over time expanding our capacity for cognitive challenge, whether that is Reading, whether that is doing things that involve mental arithmetic, you know, stop using the calculator on your phone, see if you can work things out mentally or with a paper and pen in your head. Our lives are completely ruled by technology now and it's taken away so much of the cognitive demands we would have once had. So anything that you can do to use your brain a little bit more, can also support brain pull and that also supports the overall picture of your health and this concept of neuroinflammation. So there's a few other things I just wanted to touch on here as well. Polyphenols are natural plant chemicals that have been reported to be neuroprotective and potentially to suppress neuroinflammation and promote memory learning and cognitive function. So we definitely want all of those things. And polyphenols are types of Components in plants, and I'll just read out a few different sources for you. So, this is usually a list that I give most of my clients. But you can find large amounts of polyphenols in berries, so particularly things like black elderberry, black chokeberry, blackcurrant, blueberries. You can also find polyphenols in artichokes, in coffee, in strawberries, in cherries, in blackberries, in plums, in raspberries, flaxseed, dark chocolate, chestnut, black tea, green tea, hazelnuts, cocoa powder, pomegranates, black grape, black olive. And so the list continues. I'll perhaps see if I can put this list in the show notes for you. Polyphenols are foods which can be supportive of creating this anti-inflammatory diet. And what I usually suggest that clients do is they take that list of polyphenol foods and they just try and have as many as possible every single day. Generally speaking, I'm also asking my clients to aim for 20 or more different types of plants per day. So the more color and variety you can get each day in terms of plant intake, that will mean you get a diverse amount of different nutrients, which we call phytonutrients, which can have an anti-inflammatory effect in the body. I'm sure you've also heard that fish is brain food. So the omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA have a very powerful anti-inflammatory effect. For full body inflammation, EPA is really good. And for the brain, DHA is really good. So if you don't eat fish, maybe you're a vegan, you could look at something like an algae supplement, which has got high amounts of both because remember, we want to manage the peripheral and the neuroinflammation. And then finally, your good types of fatty foods. So things like avocado, olives, olive oil, walnuts. These types of fats, in addition to the omega-3 fats, have a very beneficial effect on the body. And in a healthy body, essentially we should eat fats during the day. And these fats are loaded into our fat cells so that we call it um, charging up the fat cells with beneficial fatty acids. And then at nighttime, when you go to sleep and you're not eating anything, then your body is drawing on your fat reserves for energy. And so if we've got our fat cells which are charged up with these beneficial fatty acids and then they're being released into circulation during the nighttime when we're sleeping, that can be really beneficial for calming inflammation in the body as these fatty acids within the fat cells have an anti-inflammatory effect, have an anti-inflammatory message for the body. And then finally, sunlight exposure. I spoke a little bit about this when I did the sleep episode. So if you haven't listened to that, I would go back and listen to that or listen to it again if you feel that you need to. But it is our exposure to sunlight at the beginning of the day and then lack of exposure to lights in the evening that inform our biorhythm. And this biorhythm is also really important for managing the immune system. So when we expose ourselves to bright lights in the morning, that creates a peak in cortisol and remember it's that cortisol that helps to turn off the immune system and likewise at night time we should be producing adequate amounts of melatonin for sleep and then it's at night time when we're asleep we're sending those good fatty acids into circulation and that's also managing the inflammatory environment. So if we want to do anything to support our body From a therapeutic point of view, we want to make sure we're eating good quality fats and avoiding pro-inflammatory fats like too many processed fats or trans fats or fats in processed foods, making sure that we're supporting our biorhythms, getting that abundance of plants and either having some oily fish maybe three times a week or taking a fish oil supplement or an algae supplement if you um, don't eat fish. So that has been quite a long episode today. It's been quite a lot to share, quite a lot as well for me to wrap my head around and explain it in a way that's hopefully useful to you. But as I come to an end now of this episode, I thought it might be a good idea just for me to wrap up and um, just summarize everything. So in summary, what we want to understand about neuroinflammation is that neuroinflammation is the basis of disease and whether you've tested for it or not it doesn't really matter it's just a consequence of the overall imbalance in the body which means that something which needs to be resolved hasn't been resolved yet and that could be something physical something mental something emotional And so, how we support the body to overcome neuroinflammation is we first of all need to work on the things that need resolution, whether that is a physical threat, a mental threat, or an emotional threat. And if necessary, we also have to restore the body's brain pull. And that we can do through the use of a ketogenic diet, the use of fasting, the use of cognitive challenge. And we can also maybe throw in some hormetic stresses as appropriate, heat stress, cold stress, exercise stress as appropriate for the individual. Obviously exercise always tricky in chronic illness. And then we can bring in some support for the body. So if we want, we really want to make sure that that diet is an anti-inflammatory diet. And again, you can listen to the podcast I did on diet and fatigue recovery to get a sense of what that anti-inflammatory diet could be. You can also listen to the mitochondria support episode because some of those dietary principles overlap here. We want to be charging our fat cells with good fatty acids and then be setting our biorhythm so that we have a peak in cortisol in the morning and we're getting restful sleep at night. And I appreciate that that's also a little complicated because sometimes one of the immune activation strategies is to mess, up, mess with your sleep. So that's where Nuance comes in and where it can be helpful to work with a practitioner to resolve all of this. But if you are following those principles, you're doing the bulk of the work. And if things are not resolving, if you're still not feeling as well as what you could feel, I think that's where it can be really helpful to work with a practitioner like myself or someone similarly qualified who can help to reveal your blind spots, things that you could tweak, fine tune um, to get the next leg up in your journey. And I also think that when people feel like they're doing everything and they're still a little bit stuck in their journey, that's a really good time to circle back to supporting your nervous system. So that has been a long episode today. Thank you so much for staying with me. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it made sense. I hope I didn't overwhelm you with all the nitty gritty details, but hopefully it gives you an empowering perspective on your inflammation and you can enjoy the rest of your fatigue recovery day.